If you're not already a Patreon subscriber, go to Patreon and look for The Theology Pit or go to TheologyPit.com and just find the link to Patreon. This month, the month of October 2020, you will get this entire two-hour interview for just a buck. Just a dollar. I mean, just that's it. That's it. Less than a cup of coffee. And you get the uncut two-hour interview with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood podcaster, theologian, and pastor, Samson Kovach, coming back to you again with part three of our discussion with Don Collett and his book, Figural Reading and the Old Testament. If you haven't heard um, one and two, uh, parts one and two, go ahead back and listen to them, or for a buck, all through the month of October, you can go to Patreon. If you are a Patreon subscriber for $1, just $1, you can hear this entire interview completely uncut all two hours. Just a buck, less than a cup of coffee, and you get great theology. Sure, sure. Well, you maybe what you're trying what you are saying is that we're justified by an alien righteousness and faith is is part of that alien righteousness in the sense that it comes to us as gift. Uh, from another. Correct. I would say that it is a gift, but not all gifts justify, as we know. Well, yeah, Um, sure. But I would say that it is the gift that you are given because you have been justified, not for you to be justified. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And so Uh, that that was... That was kind of my thesis. We could chat about that. Ah, uh, yeah, well, that, yeah, but I don't want to get off your book here. uh, Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. I I would say briefly, too, that... um, I've made the case. I think there was a we we had a discussion on predestination myself and a few other faculty members back around 2011 of Trinity and I would say you do need to believe um you know God doesn't believe for you what would God have to believe in. However, that leaves open the question of what it is the act of belief is, and that's what you're trying to clarify here. Well, yeah, yeah. but I mean, with something like that, I would just throw the recapitulation via the atonement at you and, and just say that Christ, yes, had to believe in order to recapitulate that, which mankind couldn't do. But the fact that you do believe is the evidence that God is righteous, that Christ is faithful, and that what has been accomplished this is the tangible evidence that we do believe. So what you mean by Christ believing for us is essentially fulfilling in a faithful way the Torah and the Word of God and in our on our behalf. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And, well, and just and but I take it even back further than that. I would say all of all of the the universe. It's putting humanity back in its right place. So I would look at um, something like uh, oh, why is the name escape uh, Anselm's Credeus Homo. Yeah. And and his articulate. So so Christ had to be that perfect human in all ways, not just in fulfilling that, but just being in the proper place to keep us, you know, sure. where we needed to be. And so I don't just. Um, distill it down to just, you know, the Torah and, you know, his life and stuff. It's it's in the the completion of what he is. Right. He he's 
as the second Adam, the fully human in every aspect of, yes, of that correct. term. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Which is why Aquinas is wrong on that. <laughs> well. <laughs> he said he didn't have faith. Come on, say it. Thomas that, Aquinas was wrong. That that so. I haven't looked at Aquinas on that point. Apparently, this is a debate that uh, you've had with another professor at the school. <laughs> Uh, I'll look into it. I'll, I'll see. I'll see what you, what you, you really pull it up. What you really should do is send me your thesis so I can look at it uh, and give you my view on it, sure, which sure. may or may not help. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those ones out there. Um, when I had a discussion with it on my other podcast, Divergent Theology, at the end of it, uh, Michael Patton said, "Yeah, this is." He's like, "This is really good, but you are really alone." And he, oh, wow. <laughs> I said, I know, but, but he said... Why do I get the impression that doesn't bother you? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Listen, I, I really believe in the body of Christ, you know, yeah. and and um, somebody's got to be the anus. I know, <laughs> I know that it's me. But, you know, if, 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 if it doesn't function properly, then the whole body right. becomes full of crap and dies. Right. So, therefore, I'm yeah, I really don't have You're, too much of a problem with that. But... Um, but I, I, I kind of found it interesting because the way that I, I look at the relationship between faith and justification and what justification truly is and how we are truly just at the same time that we're sinners, right. that this is a both and type thing. A lot of what you were discussing in your book with the relation to the literal and the allegorical fit that same motif. It's yeah. like there's there's this it, – it's more than just one dimensional. It's more than just a one dimensional understanding. And, there, and I, recently I've also been studying um, – uh, the historical prayers and the historicity of Yom Kippur and yeah. looking at what, what the, how the Jewish people understood it and some of the prayers um, of, of looking to that, you know, before time began, that the temple was there, the Messiah was there that, you know, within yeah. their prayers. And, and it's just, it, it's, it's just very fascinating, but that before there was anything, there was redemption made possible. Yeah. And, and it's like, wow. So that's the reality, which, which shows us that, you know the the atonement of Christ uh, was not just at one moment that continued forward. Right. There's an eternality to it that has always been, and yeah. so therefore, looking at and understanding Scripture and especially God working with Israel, you when you do it with the redemption motif in your mind of what has been accomplished, you can understand why they could believe. Right. Why? Why God could interact with them to begin with? Why you know? Because everything, sin, and everything else would push Him away, but yet it was already reconciled, and God just constantly coming back to us and you know calling us prostitutes and everything else. Yeah, that's you know, there, in, there's a in Hosea that that problematizes our understanding of time as linear, and mm. that's one of the things I try to get into in the start of the book is that yeah that's uh, played uh, you know wreaked havoc with uh, quite a bit of the logic of figural reading. But as you're talking about it, it also, you know, how could the saints of God in the Old Testament participate in the redemption of Christ before Christ came as the word made flesh and redeemed them? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's, that's another way in which the linear time situation uh, works against yeah. any idea of of something that's always present at every point. I call it the metaphysics of the novum, you know, yeah, event yeah. A, event B follows event A. And when event B happens, event A is gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a better explanation than a seminal reality. Yeah. Christ was really there. It's yeah. That's, so, a, you know, that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, 
in I I want to say it's in um, his book Incarnation. T. F. Torrance talks about our relationship to time and how yeah. sin has affected even our relationship to time and space, and so we yeah. don't even. Uh, see time or experience time in the proper way because of the effect of sin. Oh yeah. So with God who is, you know, engaging with time and space in the proper way, it's so difficult for us to understand. Oh sure. That and and in Old Testament studies there's been a special instance of this where uh, it was popular in the mid twentieth century to argue that nature religion worked with a a circular ordering of times, a so called cyclical or repetitive ordering Mm -hmm. that the distinct thing about Israel's faith was that it had a historical faith, a historical religion, not just a nature religion, and that that historical religion was construed as linear progress forward. Yeah. And I try to show how the Genesis 1 and 2 really problematize this. Yes, the the creation moves toward a, to, a telos of Sabbath rest, but it does that within a repetitive ordering of time in the seven-day weeks. So you can't say that the Bible's approach to time is either fully cyclical or fully linear, if you want to call that. I would say that the the, the cyclical is more fundamental from Genesis' point of view, that it's it's the one that the that movement occurs within, but uh, you know movement forward. But it's it's it isn't either one really. Um, you know what is the Bible's view of time? Is it cyclical, or is it uh, one that has movement forward? I would say it's impossible to identify it fully with either one. I would almost want to use the word reciprocal. Yeah, that yeah, that's it, a, that. That would be helpful. Yeah, that it, it, it very much is. Um, and because if it's not, then and and it's 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 in a linear sense, but yet we we see God. Let's say, yeah, uh, saving in different ways, or right. you know, having different requirements, or whatever. That doesn't that just destroy the immutability of God? Right. Because now you have a God that's constantly changing with the yeah. progressive times. Yeah. I mean, you might as well go full open theist at that right. point. You know, and it's it's also it makes it impossible for to speak of any presence of Christ prior to the incarnation, mm-hmm. understood as a unique historical event that uh, you know has no counterpart in uh, in the Old Testament. Um, so. You know, it's it's a very it's there's a lot of assumptions that work against uh, you know figural reading when you when you start uh, bringing in certain views of time that really don't come from the Bible. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that Torrance had said that, but that's helpful. Uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. Like I, I remember coming across it because I read his um, his his two books, and they're beautiful if you haven't read them: uh, Incarnation and Atonement, because it's yeah. like his swan song. Right before he died. And you can even see an atonement about a third of the way through the language really shifts because I think that's after he had his stroke and his um, nephew and son were putting together the rest of it. And he was able to approve of, I think, the the final drafts of them um, like a couple months before his his death. Um, So if if you want to see what um, a great theologian, his last thoughts were on what he thought was the most important thing that the um, the Protestant churches need to know. Yeah, those two books right oh, there. Right. I mean, they they they're they're wonderful, and and he really stressed the um, the recapitulation understanding. He said we yeah. it, it's diminished in Protestant churches. We don't talk about it. He even goes so far as to say that um, the incarnation was the redemptive aspect in the world because 
after that point, everything else was inevitable. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's uh yeah, that's a very provocative statement for, is, for most is. of the people I would deal with. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, you guys have all kinds of <laughs> weird stuff that you hold Well, the, the, the main pressures in, in Old Testament studies that you are going to wrestle with are, are the legacy of historicism, you know, to... Mm-hmm. The, this this pressure to truly to consign the Bible to the past. The Bible is not just in the past; it's truly past, and it's our job somehow either to summon it into our present or or treat it like it's an outdated. You know, if you go the liberal direction, it's just a something that you know has been superseded by further historical mm-hmm. happenings. Uh, as a living voice that continues to speak into our present, uh, that's. You know that's that's the main issue. How do we understand that? Um, can we understand it non-Christologically? I, I don't want to go in for a kind of Christomonism that detaches the voice of Christ from the Trinitarian persons. Yeah, and I I think I I make that clear in the book by using Trinitarian language whenever mm-hmm. I can. But there is a there is the word and the wisdom of God as as the the revelatory voice of God to us in the Old Testament in the way that those realities are presented word and wisdom within the one being of God is is what the Trinitarian semantics of the Church comes out of mm-hmm. the peculiar presentation of God's oneness is what drives their understanding of the Trinity not just as a New Testament reality but as something the Old Testament authorizes God is already in relation to word and spirit from the first three verses of the Bible. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it wasn't so much. I don't think that that was the big struggle that I see through the old Testament for Israelite, the Israel's uh, Israelites to learn was the, was the concept of the monotheism as opposed to the henotheism that they held to, Yeah, you know, that it wasn't so much acknowledging the one God but it was also rejecting the concept that there were even other gods out there. Right. And, and you know, it wasn't until, um, what, like 165 BC that they became fiercely monotheistic? Well, they have, uh, I think that if you're, what you're saying is that polytheism has always been a problem uh, for Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and struggling with, with the testimony to God's oneness in the midst of a polytheistic world wherein Israel, you know, bought into many of the polytheistic ideas and idolatry mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> is, is the catchword. That struggle's always been around. Uh, if someone wants to say that the witness to the oneness came, you know, went through a process of formation and was later formulated, uh, that's one thing. But mm-hmm. I think the conviction that God is one is goes back further than the post-exilic period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, and So that's not what I was... Oh. Trying to trying oh, to drive okay. at, I, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't trying to say that they they believe that there are a whole bunch of gods and then maybe these three. Were yeah. like no, no, no. What I mean is that their understanding of Yahweh, yeah. he was just the greatest of all the other gods. Yeah, and they had to learn. Theology Pit is a partner-funded ministry. Please consider partnering with us by making a donation at thetheologypit.com. 
Just scroll to the bottom of the page, hit the donate button, and make a contribution to the best Theology Pit podcast on the internet. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, the, 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 way, that, the way that his... What you what interesting thing you find about monotheism in the you know and N.T. Wright and Richard Balkum and others have done some work on this Larry Hurtado, uh, some of the better known names that the Second Temple monotheism basically after the reconstruction of the Second Temple around five twenty to five sixteen B.C. Mm-hmm. all the way down to seventy A.D. Yeah, but. Early on in Second Temple monotheism, uh, especially as you get close to the first century BC, um, there's a there's a te- there's a way of reading. Richard Bauckham handles this in his book. Uh, it was originally called God Crucified. It's now been reprinted in another book form. But uh, he shows that they're reading the oneness of God in ways that are congruent with or cohere with uh, distinctions of person within the one being. Now, they don't have a language of hypostasis worked out, mm-hmm. uh, but these word and wisdom are not just understood in a modalistic fashion as other names for God. They're understood as distinctions intrinsic to the one being of God. Yes. And that, that happens before Christ and the apostles come on the scene. So the Trinitarian semantics of the Old Testament, that would only be one dimension of it, really grows out of the way that oneness is presented, the witness mm-hmm. to oneness is presented you know, and I was trying to get at some of that in my discussion in the book on Proverbs eight. Yeah, uh, which you know, these days almost no one reads Christologically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even in the Reformed tradition, the idea is well, you've got woman wisdom there, and Christ was a male, and so it couldn't be talking about him anyhow. It's just well, that's because that's how that's how Satan interprets scripture. <laughs> well, yeah. well re- read the temptation narrative. <laughs> oh, right. He's yeah. he's interpreting the Psalms to be speaking about Christ. Yeah. And Christ does not dispute that, yeah. you know, and stuff. So I'm not taking my hermeneutic from Satan. Yeah, I'm yeah, not going to read it Christologically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> never thought of that. What? No, but uh, I mean, it is kind of a, kind of a funny. It's it's like an ironic thing. It's like yeah. wow, Satan's actually saying, hey, you know, in this psalm here that you know, throw your throw yourself down and the angels will come. Yeah, he's he's saying, hey, Jesus, this is about you. I know yeah. it is. And he's yeah. like, hey, don't put your Lord God. To the test. He doesn't rebuke him. Say. Pff, that yeah. psalm's not about me, Satan. You idiot. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah, that's uh, I Psalm Psalm ninety one. Well, I, I understand the witness given to Christ in the Old Testament, not exclusively so, but under the figure of Israel. Yeah. So when Israel is my firstborn son, and the things that I really believe that it's in the judgment of Israel that God communicates His wisdom to the nations. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a uh, you know simultaneous acts of judgment and mercy. Yeah. Well, that's that, that reciprocation that we were talking yeah. about. That's that's of the nature of God. And that's why I think it's necessary for the New Testament to exist because yeah. the Old Testament is God, his love going out. Yeah. And the New Testament with Christ being the Israelite, yeah. reciprocating it back for all of humanity. Right. And so that's it's, it's an inevitable necessary that everything – will eventually, I mean, this is very Edwardian here, but everything will eventually yeah. be, you know, re- returned back to God. Everything reciprocates back to God. Yeah, that's, it's good to hear someone say that, yes, there is a forward movement from the Old Testament, but it's pressured by the Old Testament itself in what God is doing in Israel, culminating in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Most often when you get this movement forward in the Old Testament, it's something that is 
almost entirely a function of a retrospective perspective. You know, mm-hmm. you can. Uh, it isn't coming from the productive potential of the Old Testament's literal sense because, it, you know, the one who speaks in the literal sense, this is the inexhaustible triune God. So there's got to be a productive potential in the words of Scripture. No, it doesn't come from that. It, that's not what's pressuring the forward movement. There's sort of this retrospective reading that the apostles do with the benefit of what they see later. And, of course, what they see later is never attached as coming from the inexhaustible riches. It's cut off from the productive potential of the Old Testament's literal sense. What you got here is a word spoken to its own day. And then you've got all this other surplus, and it doesn't come out of the Old Testament. It comes out of the Christ event and the apostles' reading of it. Uh, I do think there's a surplus, but I don't think you can detach it from the productive potential of the Old Testament's literal sense. I don't think Christ would have seen it that way either. No, uh-uh. uh, um, but uh, st- having studied Jonathan Edwards and his understanding of the Trinity, I've yeah. really adopted that hmm. because of the that just the instead of beginning from a you know a a type of stasis you know yeah. understanding or but he starts with the relational and yeah. it makes a lot more sense hmm. in in the way that God relates, but that, that re, um, uh, you know, back and forth that, that he always has, that's just always been there. So therefore anything that comes out of him, creation right. is not just going to go out. Right. It's also going to return. Hmm. And so you, you're always going to have that. And what's interesting about it is when you read scripture with this sort of mindset yeah. You know, um, I I preached on um, uh, Ezekiel eighteen this this Sunday, and uh, you know, our lectionary kind of chopped the um, you know the chapter up, yeah. and so I had to sort of summarize the uh, the central part of the three different types of men. You know, the one that was righteous and did what was right, the his son that was just a man of blood, and then his grandson which saw what his father did and was like, no, you know. But um, one thing that I stressed is I was like, now hear the good news. Yeah. And then you, you're, you're staying right there in the 18th chapter, and it's the man who repents and turns and knows that it does wrong. He is he will be saved. He will. I mean, it's the, the gospel is right there, as if though you lifted something from the New Testament and just threw it right into Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah. Eric Moore must be right. All of the <laughs> every, all the answers are found in Ezekiel. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think every fulfillment flows out of its every book of the Old Testament. We tend to think of fulfillment as something that happens outside the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But fulfillment is already speaking out of every book of the Old Testament. Yeah. He, consummating in Christ, yes, but already uh, present before he arrives. Well, and that's I think that's because of the eternality of the atonement. That yeah. That atonement is always there. So at any point, it's not out of God's character. Yeah, the, 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 the go-to yeah. text, depending on how you translate Revelation 13.8, I see no reason not to go the direction the King James does, but uh, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Uh, no, it's when you have a historicist hermeneutic, it's very difficult to get things that happen later in the line as applicable to, you know, telos being already applicable to RK, yeah. to put it in those yeah, yeah. biblical terms. That's one of the reasons why that you know, figural reading has declined. That's one of the reasons why liturgical 
uh, thinking has declined, and it's mm. also one of the reasons the Christological witness of the Old Testament, on its own terms, has declined yeah. or basically been erased. Well, I heard uh, someone more famous than us say that we can just detach the Old Testament from the New. Yeah. We don't even need it. <laughs> Is this someone I know? <laughs> or was it Schleiermacher? Well, he didn't really say that. He just said no, the Old no, Testament's was, kind of an, an appendix was, to the I New. I think it was Charles Stanley's Disappointment of a Son. Oh, right. Oh, well, yeah, the Stanley. That, that, the Stanley. Andy. Uh, yeah, Andy yeah. Stanley's statements on the Old Testament are, as far as I'm concerned, pure Marcionism. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm amazed that that kind of unsophisticated statement can still survive in the in what is allegedly the orthodox Christian tradition. I mean, uh, well, it just shows you the undereducation of the church as a whole seeped in to seminaries and leadership to where it can produce somebody yeah. like this, who people look listen to that and say, "Oh, that's palatable." Yeah, someone yeah. someone might wonder. Well, you know, you didn't spend much time with the New Testament. I, I see the New Testament, and I say this at one point in the book. I don't see it as just the aftermath of the old. You know, the new, the old is the prolegomena, and then the new. You know, old's not just prolegomena, but neither is the new just simply aftermath. What you have prolegomena, are two first first words, first yeah, things, first you, concept, you, yeah. What you have are two unique witnesses to the one God speaking in Christ by the Spirit, and they're not replaceable by one another. Um, so I try to do this. Uh, you know, but the reason I emphasize the Old Testament is, you know, that uh, I read an interesting essay by my uh, former PhD supervisor Christopher Seitz, and it was Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. It shows up in some of his writings, somewhere in his earlier writings. But he talks about the ripple effect that happens. You know, these people get the idea that there's some real problems there in the Old Testament. You know, you've got uh, these wars of conquest and you've got other things. So let's do some repair work on the Old Testament. But since the New Testament is in accordance with the Old Testament, they find out that they really can't do repair work on the Old Testament without having to do a little nuancing to the new. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to, at our quiet day at school recently, David Nay talking about how this case of the, of the in, in the book of Judges, the one who's judged in his, his bowels spill out. Oh, is that where Gideon is stabbing? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, how brutal this is, you know, but I got news for you. There's a counterpart in the New Testament with Judas, you know, when, when he falls headlong in, the, in Potter's Field and his bowels burst yeah. out. Or how about the fact that here's Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they drop over dead. I mean, let alone what is said in the book of Revelation, so, you know, they, the people realize this. They start doing repair work on the Old Testament to get rid of all these nasty things that they, they think are, are wrong and because they don't understand the theological context in which they're happening. And then they go into the New Testament and start finding this too. So they do repair work on that. Where they end up is outside both Testaments yeah. with the Spirit now not speaking through a twofold canon as a final witness but the spirit being tethered to the changing cultural contexts. This is exactly what happened in the liberal wing of the Episcopal Church. Mm. And I know that there are still Orthodox voices in the Episcopal Church, and, and I want to encourage them as much as I can. I was yeah. confirmed Episcopalian. But this, is, this hermeneutic strikes me as it started with them losing their hold on the Old Testament. They'll tell you, well, you know, what happened in the 1960s in the Episcopal Church is we failed too many, you know, we ordained too many failed artists. These people that were in the world of art and didn't make a career, and then they decided liturgy and aesthetics would be their thing. And so they came into the church and brought 
you know, all kinds of confusion. It, so it's really liturgy that made the Episcopal Church liberal. I don't share that view. I think yeah. it's really they, they lost their hold on Scripture, specifically the Old Testament Scripture is where mm-hmm. it started. They started hammering on that. Are you familiar with um, Paul Copen's book, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, I did read it. Uh, maybe it, I thought it was helpful. Because it for came the, out like 2011, I think. Yeah, I thought it was helpful for sorting I, out I, some I, of the issues in the conquest. I liked it because that it seems that the philosophy you're talking about, that's where it stems from. It's this yeah. postmodern you know, uh, reaction to the brutality or right. the perceived brutality in the, right. in, in the Old Testament and saying, well, that's not, that's not our God. Yeah, it's... it's yeah. Uh, the early church read the conquest as, a, uh, along with some more recent writers, someone like Meredith Klein, who I had as an Old Testament prof years ago in seminary, uh, read it as a foreshadowing of final judgment. It wasn't a moral model to be followed in all times and all places, but it was a it was a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen in Revelation 20 when when the sheep and the goats are separated. Believer is no longer allowed to exist alongside unbeliever. Yeah. But uh, this, so they never took it as, you know, now you go and do likewise. (laughs) It was a way of, a figural way of pulling back the curtain on final judgment. Mm. And it's not the only one in the Old Testament. There's Sodom and Gomorrah. There's, you know, a number. It's just the conquest is, they try to understand it in the categories of modern genocide. Yeah. And read that back into what's happening. I think Copen's book was helpful in showing why that's, that doesn't do justice to what's going on. Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Please take a moment to rate our podcast and leave a comment about what you like or what you don't like. Each rating and comment helps others discover this show. Don't forget to visit us at thetheologypit.com to make a donation. While on the website, we would appreciate it if you would share these podcasts with your friends and family on social media. Our Facebook page is also titled The Theology Pit. Stop over and give us a like. If you have any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please write to samson at thetheologypit.com. That's samson, spelled S-A-M-S-O-N, at thetheologypit.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's show. Now you have the order of knowing preceding the order of being. So you get somebody who says, oh, I see there that God's presented in relation to word and spirit, but... They couldn't have fully seen everything that you can see in, say, the Nicene Creed, and therefore that the reality of the Trinity is not there until you can later fully see. You see that lurking in the background is the idea that what we know legislates what is. Yeah, but they wouldn't have seen that without Tertullian. So if he yeah. was just born earlier. But I want to keep the yeah. witness to the triune God and Christ rooted in the inspired words that the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit gave to the writers, not what's in the consciousness. This and more the on the next Theology Pit. Yeah.